Today's episode of That Song from That Movie is coming up after this. Hello, potential listeners. My name is The Vern, and I'm the host of the Cinema Recall Podcast. On most shows, myself, along with some great guests, we will talk about a movie and then some of the most iconic moments that happened in said movie. On top of that, you'll get bonus shows where I will give you short reviews about new and classic movies, or I'll just rant and rave about something going on in the entertainment industry. So come check us out. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, most other places. Don't forget to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at Cinema underscore Recall. And then on Facebook, Instagram, we are Cinema Recall Podcast. Uh, don't forget to email us your ad spots to play on future episodes. That email is cinemarecall at gmail.com. Hope to see you around, and thank you very much for listening. It may have come out before any of us were born, as in any of us on the podcast, not anyone in the world, and yet it's still incredibly relevant to today's life. So we're doing Do the Right Thing on today's That Song from That Movie. Get a broom and sweep out front. Get a broom and sweep out front. Okay. Thank you for joining that song from that movie, The Journey for the Very Best and Worst of Movie Songs. I am your eight-head host, Dietrich, and we're joined by, all he wants to do is hide the salami, Alex. <laughs> it's a very difficult operation a lot of the times. <laughs> it's a big game in the Alex household as a kid. Hide the salami. Yeah, sure. Needs no further explanation. No. And... Jerry Curl alert, Ben. You know, I, I I once tried, like, you know, the, lots of moisture, lots of humidity. It doesn't work. But my hair has uncurled over time, over the years. Via a straightener. Uh, well, there was there was periods. There was definitely there periods. There was a phase. There was a phase. It was a, it was a dark phase. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was, it was kind of... Uh, well, it was time. dark for me because my hair was often in my eyes. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's just my life since COVID, to be honest. Though, <laughs> what straighteners? No hair in the eyes. Yes, you you've been rocking the bandana a lot. Yeah, and the and the uh, the toggle or whatever you call it. <laughs> oh, you're on a toggle! Wow. Yeah, I've been on I do toggle. wonder what the viewers think we look like. I know. <laughs> Not that we're ever going to do a video podcast because I can't be asked getting ready for these. Oh no, no, no! I mean, it's bad enough managed to get Audacity and Zoom to work. Imagine like bringing a camera into the mix. <laughs> 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 right, uh, what have we been watching this week? I, I rewatched Band of Brothers because I haven't watched it since I was about God, twelve. That is very emotional, emotional and emotional. <laughs> <laughs> very kinetic. No, I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's one of the best TV shows I've ever seen. And I can like say it's Saving Private Ryan, but much better. <laughs> it's always up there, isn't it? As like one of the best TV shows of all time. Yeah, I think because it's slow. Even though it is melodramatic, it's like every episode is harrowing. There's there's hardly any happiness. Um, I think you know as how it was. Um, whereas I guess in Private Ryan, I think is is just a bit too uh, ramped up on the on the melodrama. Has it held up, Ben? Yeah, it really has. Yeah, I think it's the fact that every character it. just looks like well, will die at any second. 
there's no sort of oh that's the main character so they're going to survive or it's going to be some sort of big last stand it's just no this is real people and they could go at any second because this war is bloody hell well on Alex, a li- you on, watched on, anything yeah on a lighter note <laughs> i watched a film last night called everybody's talking about jamie which is like a oh, the musical oh, the, yeah the musical. i think i'm supposed yeah. to see that at some point this year Yes, it's the film adaptation of the musical, which I've not seen. I've not seen the musical. It was a fun film. I think like it had a really nice positive message, but it, it was kind of lack. It was kind of all a bit surface. It was lacking a bit of depth. And like weirdly for a film, well, actually this isn't weird. I guess this maybe is true of a lot of film musicals because they're having to sort of transport it from the stage to film. I think sometimes the songs often get like a bit lost in the whole visual element of it. So they'd have a lot of songs play like where they didn't give it its full breathing space and they'd have like montages running whilst the songs were happening. It felt a bit more like it was a soundtrack sometimes. Sounds very Bollywood. Yeah, me well, I don't know. I did have some set pieces that maybe were a bit like in line with that, definitely. I just think like sometimes that's what film musicals get wrong. They don't treat the songs with maybe the respect that they deserve. Because there was a lot of catchy songs, but you didn't find yourself Is that like, remembering uh... any of them. Uh, Rocket Man, because Rocket Man was very sort of cut away to song. Yeah, like, I think it's it like worked. a montage moment. Yeah, it worked in Rocket Man because they were more fa- you knew the songs, so they kind of worked in the context. I think with this, because I had no knowledge of any of the songs because they were yeah, all, yeah. You know, original songs for the musical. Even especially like the more emotional ones, like you didn't really connect with them as much as maybe you would with someone singing directly to you on a stage. So I think it'd be interesting to see the real show. But it was a, it was, you know, it was, it, it very much fell in line with every film of that Seven kind of genre, up. like <laughs> Billy Elliot or like Brastoff yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. For Monty. It was like that. It was set in Sheffield as well. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was a nice. Was it an Andy Lau eight out of ten? Yeah, yeah. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, free if anyone's Yeah, I've seen it a few times. Sponsors. So I recently got access to Game Pass. So the things I've been watching this week in terms of TV show and movies have reduced significantly. Um, but I watch. I've been watching the book of Boba Fett. Oh uh, yeah, I've not seen it yet. I've not started watching it yet. Um, it's been okay. Actually, the first two episodes were pretty good. The third one though is the one everyone's going. What the fuck is this? <laughs> so uh, look forward to that. But the other thing I've watched because I'm I'm right on the pulse of popular culture is I finally watched Bob Burnham's Inside. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. What do you think? I thought it was quite good. Oh. <laughs> Take away the quiet. <laughs> Take away the quiet. Yeah, I, I think. Part of the problem was, obviously, you guys have spoken about it on the podcast before, and I've heard other people talk about it. A lot of hype. It's almost like it, a lot of hype, but also like I expected a more of an emotional sort of effect on me. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you'd hit in the height of the, the lockdown feeling, maybe that would have been it. And also, I did watch it on the same day I'd watched Do the Right Thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, heavy, heavy. So uh, one one of those two things had a bigger impact on me personally. Yeah, that's fair. But uh, I guess we'll come to that later. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. I mean, I still listen to the soundtrack of Inside Now all the time, but I think it definitely was one of those things that hit at the right time in lockdown when everyone was like... (laughs) FaceTime with your mum tonight. There was definitely bits that that did impact me, like where he's trying to say it's it's been a year now and he can't get through it. Mm. And turning 30. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Eyes on Me is just, I think it's an absolute jam. Of all the songs, that's the only one I've added to my playlist at the moment. Absolute belter. Um, I'll, I might add that one about getting cancelled. Yeah, that's a, that's a tune as well. <laughs> the one about his Aladdin costume. Yeah, yeah. This week we're breaking down Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing and its use of public enemies Fight the Power. So to find out what was happening in the world when the movie came out. 
time for some history. Yes, it's time for some history. And we are in June 1989, just before we were birthed into this world. Yeah. In this month, one of the most famous photos of all time is taken in China of an unknown protest as he stands in front of three tanks prior to the Tiananmen Square massacre. It's an absolute cracker of a photo. I mean, probably one of the most. <laughs> it's probably one of the most famous pictures I think, like of all time. Surely. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, only as I've gotten older do you learn about all the disgusting and harrowing things around it. But yeah, it just feels like it's not real. I'm uh, obliged by the Chinese government to say that photo is not real and never happened. <laughs> yes, uh, don't sponsor us, China. Sponsor us, Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> um, in other news, uh, 800 police arrest 250 people. Don't know what that ratio is. Uh, or, or as the article that I read said, people or hippies who tried to attend the summer solstice festival at Stonehenge. Uh, an annual occurrence, both the arrests and the solstice. Apparently this was getting quite a bad thing in the late 80s. Like, it was just like a, a Woodstock mass congregation of just people flocking to Stonehenge. Never really heard of it. Don't know if it still happens. Stonehenge is overrated. <laughs> it's just some stones in a field. Yeah, you can drive past yeah. it on that road anyway, so why do you need to walk up to it? And if you want a more, you know, like a less crowded experience, go to the Royal Wright Stones. Same kind of thing. <laughs> you're, a, you're a cultured swine, Alex. <laughs> or the Druid's Temple in Ripon. Uh, now, now, try and break this one down for me because it's hurting my head. In this month, June 1989, for one second in the morning, the time was 01234567895. In America. Well, oh, yeah, in America. If you forget the 19 <laughs> in front of the 89. Yes, yes, but that's what I mean. Someone's, I mean, you, you're pushing it, but apparently that will never happen again, really. <laughs> Oh, one, well, two, three, yeah. four, five, six, seven, Surely eight, it would nine. happen like in 2008. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but you know, we'll, yeah. we'll all be dead by then. It happens once every hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, today we are talking about the movie Do the Right Thing, which is a 1989 American drama, drama, probably the best way of describing it, produced, written, and directed by Spike Lee. So, it stars the likes of Danny Aiello, Ossie Davis, Giancarlo Esposito, John Turturro, Samuel Jackson, and Spike Lee himself as we watch the racial tensions flare on a Brooklyn neighbourhood block as the temperature skyrockets, culminating in tragedy and violence. So, what do we think of this one? As is often the case in this podcast, I watched this movie the first time this week, as I sort of referenced. It's always nice, actually. I quite like this. A fresh take. Yeah, I guess it's all like, this is a podcast that's a review show, but also it's just you guys giving me like an education in cinema, making me watch these films. Uh, Anyway... Yeah, I really enjoyed this movie from like from the literal first second all the way till it ended. Awesome. I did read the synopsis beforehand, which didn't really prep me for what kind of like slice of life movie it was going to be the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I was just fascinated by the characters and the location seemed so real and like the interplay between the different people on the street, random storylines that would pop up and then disappear just as quickly. I I just loved every part of it. Awesome. I think one of the things I did quite like was the fact that like you had characters like Bugging Out, who <laughs> yeah. was positioned as this like main character when you read the synopsis and at the beginning of the film, but he disappears for most of the film. Mm-hmm. But but when he comes back up, you you haven't forgotten him. Like even though you've now had a scene with like probably twenty other different characters at this point in the film when he comes back into it. So so yeah, it was just packed with great moments and it and it felt real to me. Damn it! <laughs> did you did you know that was Giancarlo Esposito? Do you know who that is? 
I didn't know that was Johnny. Does, I yeah, I, I've I, only I, just, read, just reading... As in Moff Gideon. Yeah, yes, uh, as the guy from the Far Cry games. Oh guy from... my god! <laughs> <laughs> I See? honestly yeah. had no idea it was him. I've only just realised now that you've said it. Um, yeah. yeah, it just... I was thinking when you read the cast out, I was going, what was Giancarlo Suicio in this film? Yeah, it's... it's... I went, I only knew it once reading like various wikis and seeing his name. Wow. and thinking, what? <laughs> but once you say it, you can, you, and you see, you're like, oh god, yeah, it is it. But yeah, it's, it's so weird. Yeah, I know because I, I think he was kind of he's had a very much a, a late renaissance of of his acting career. Um, but yeah, he was here many many moons ago. Uh, Alex, what do you think? It's it's just essentially it's just a masterpiece of cinema, isn't it? Really, yeah. I think it's just like it's like one of the best films I think there is. Simply. I can't imagine how fresh a film this felt in eight, 1989. Like in comparison to, to other films yeah. at the times, it's like it's crazy to think. I don't know if you were going to go into this band that it wasn't nominated for yeah. best picture. Yeah, yeah. And actually, in the same was it not? No, no. And Whoa, what makes what? it all the worse is the film that won that year was Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> yeah, and it's I like know. you have two films, both about race relations, but one's giving this sort of biting, true to reality, boiling pot yeah. of tension. And the other is like a trite, sunbed, twinkly, I'd wear not so different, you and I horsemen, you're a pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> straight off the dome piece, that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. You could tell that was uh, uh, straight off the old uh, sheet instead. But it's just like, it's unbelievable to think that that film was thought to be more worthy of awards than this one. It really yes, is incredible. It's, uh... I think it's that thing, isn't it? It's what does it make the typical sort of waspy academy feel good about themselves? <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's like yes, we're we're working on racism. We're doing, you know, it's like I mean, this is Green Book. It's basically driving Miss Daisy. It's Green Book. It's that like you know, whether you find it like an enjoyable film or not, is the fact that it takes a very uh, easy uh, view of race relations, and that you know, yeah. it's all smiling and all happy and and dancing at the at the end. Whereas do the right thing. It's not. It's really not. It's so complicated. I think that's what's so great. Incredibly about it. complicated. Yeah. I think what he does like an amazing job as well is like is the sense of like this building heat, like both literally and sort of figuratively throughout the film. Like obviously they mention yeah. how hot it is all the time. But you can really like see it on the people. Like they seem to be sweating more and it seems just to be like it feels mm. closer. Like I think at the beginning of the film you see a lot more open street shots, like you have that part with the water um thing bursting and yeah, there's like yeah, yeah. a sense that everyone's kind of keeping cool at the beginning but there's something bubbling underneath and it just explodes like at the end of the film yeah it just like it's like almost like picking at a scab isn't it and it's just like the film which is physically sweating and getting more and more tense and then obviously you have that like horrific ending like i think just the entire film is just geared so perfectly in the earlier well for most of the film really like it has this sort of bright eye-popping color to it like it's almost a bit it feels a bit like it's not, even though like you know it's all real. It feels like slightly above that. Like mm-hmm. it's it's almost like a Wes Anderson feel. I know it's before Wes Anderson, but it has that kind of like weird coloration. Yeah, and then like it's sort of like that's another covering up of actually what's lying underneath, which is this sort of yeah boiling pot of tension, as you said. Yeah, I think I read Spike Lee made sure that everyone was wearing like reds and whites, and there was no sort of like cool colors. So yeah. it, it was to like make it feel like you know it is hot. It is incredibly yeah. hot. That sort of red, br- that red brick of Brooklyn, you know, that feeling like everything is just on fire. Um, I think the best thing is like the film goes on. He uses that sort of horrible, like the skewed camera angle, like everything yeah. is on the slide, like everything, yeah, every, everything is about is about to like collapse and fall in. Um, for such a sort of a heart, like a really detailed, like critical view of race relations, he still does it in such a entertaining way that like it's not. 
it doesn't get bogged down by any of it. It's really, really well designed from like a directorial point of view. I guess that's why Spike Lee is often considered an author rather than just, you know, oh, he made one or two good films. Like his films have a particular style and he knows Brooklyn. <laughs> he knows Brooklyn very well. Um, and you can tell that. And I, I think I always like seeing directors that know the area well. And it just feels like it is a block, like you're watching a live block. Yeah, it, it feels like a real physical yeah. place, doesn't it? Like it, it feels like you're actually snooping on a real life situation rather than a, a movie set. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, as you were saying, Alex, uh, Kim Basinger, who was Basinger? 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 <laughs> uh, <Kim>, <laughs> I honestly don't know what it is now. Basinger? Basinger? Um, Kim Basinger, yeah, sure. Uh, who was presenting the Oscars that year, famously went off script when she was reading the Best Picture nominees. And she said, um, we've got five great films here. And they're great for one reason, because they tell the truth. But there's one film missing from the list that deserves to be on it, because ironically, it might tell the biggest truth of all, and that's Do the Right Thing. And Spike Lee apparently like thanked her a lot in like in interviews later because she she wasn't supposed to say that, which is obviously it's that thing of like a lot of people I think in the industry recognised this is huge, and I think Spike Lee was thirty two. How he was thirty two because he looks like he's about sixteen. <laughs> in he does, the film. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. I don't know what films he had before. There's a film called She's Got to Have It, which if you ever it's on Netflix as well. It's like a black and white film, which is really good. But I think he's still quite early in his career, and this is just it's ridiculous how good this film is. A lot of critics at the time praised it, but many also, especially from certain newspapers, criticised it heavily, saying that it would incite riots and were very critical of Spike Lee, in which he said uh, in interviews afterwards, if white people can contain themselves from causing trouble after seeing movie violence in an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, then so can black people. <laughs> and it's also missing the complete point of the film, isn't it? It's this irony, isn't it? It's this, yeah. Well, they're all saying it yeah. like you know, the the blood would be on Lee's hands if there was, and it's this feeling like, what can uh, sort of black people, people of minorities, being me, can they not control themselves when they see a film? When like action films of the eighties, and you think of like you know, this was like the high time of sort of the the Stallones, the Schwarzeneggers, the Jean Claude Van Dams. They 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 are pure violence. Yeah, it's just such a ridiculous art. I think it's that thing again. It's it's just how much of a finger he had on the pulse. Um, what I love most about this film, I think it really gets you to look introspectively at yourself and the views you have of certain characters and who you like and how you like and who you might try and defend and support and criticise. And it's done in a very digestible way, but it really does make you sort of think. Yeah. Um, and just in the question, like, do you know, and I forget the the older gentleman who's kind of almost like the patriarch of the block. The mayor. Yeah, the, the mayor, mayor, that's it, yeah. Uh, you know, they're just a line when he says, just do the right thing, and that's it. But it is that, what is that? What is the right thing? And I guess, well, I don't th- there isn't an answer. I think Spikes uh, said there's no answer, but it tells you a lot about what you think. Oh, rather, what you think tells a lot, sorry, about your views on this kind of topic. I just don't think a film does it better. Yeah, I, I think that is really poignant in the film is is that riot scene at the end because you'd think and like clearly some of the newspapers thought that that the film was like promoting that concept but it really doesn't like it doesn't say that this was the right action by any means it's just it was what happened (laughs) and it's kind of like yeah it makes it does make you question doesn't doesn't it doesn't like go all out to say yes you know like there's been such hate towards black men Mm -hmm. in, in america black men and women even and so they, this is the kind of reaction that's warranted. It actually yeah. still questions that. It still says, like, actually, is violence the right idea? 
Yeah, that's that last that last image in the film, isn't it? Well, the last image, the writing. Like he's got a speech from MLK and a speech yeah. from Malcolm X, and it's the I guess the two sides, isn't it? It's the sort of the uh, like peace protests and the sort of defensive violence, the defensive action. And I think Spike said that he's got he's fluctuated between whose views he kind of aligns more with at different points of his life. And after the film, he said he did lean more towards the words of Malcolm X. But like the, it keeps focusing on that image, doesn't it, of them both together. And it's just that, yeah, you know what? Sometimes it's just a reaction. It doesn't mean this is how it is or this is how it should be. It's just sometimes situations pull this out of you because of how awful it is and how difficult the situation is. Yep. It's so complex, but done in such a digestible way. I just don't think any other film does it like it. Yeah, it, it really got me to sort of reflect on myself and sort of Does, think yeah. about how I am as, well, I, I guess ally is the wrong term because that's usually more used for like LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, things, but I don't have a better term. Yeah, it really got me think, it does, thinking yeah. about myself. It, espe- yeah, especially watching it recently, especially the Danny Aiello character, because he, they paint him as quite sort of a pleasant character. You know, he's trying to defend against his... Quite sympathetic. Yeah, especially at the start, you know, he's a lot more softer than him, uh, John Turturro's character, his son, who's like quite sort of, <laughs> sort Open of, uh, on the, yes, yeah, vocally. <laughs> but then like Danny Aiello, like with the heat and the rising, he starts, you know, like sort of basically just saying the wrong things. He's can be quite controlling. And it's that like, how do you align with that character? Like, are you trying to defend him? Are you trying to understand him? Like, is it changing? You know, it's really interesting how you go about it. Yeah. And I, th- I think as well, like the actions of, uh, what, what is it? Bugged out? Is that is that it? Or is bugging it, out? Bugging, bugging out. out? And uh, Radio Rahim. They are quite obnoxious actions. Like he walks in there yes. with that huge boombox, like right in his face, or or bugging out. It's kind of you know just literally shouting at him about the, the the Hall of Fame board. So it's like racism aside, that would like get you to a state of like being worked up. And yeah, then yeah, there's yeah. the whole racial element woven into it. It becomes like this whole really complicated. Who's in the right? Who's in the wrong? Who? Co- and I think like the question becomes, doesn't it? Like whose fault was it for what happens in the end? And it's like exactly. you can't you can't even answer it because you start going from all different directions. Well, it's like well, where did where did all of this process begin? Did it begin right at the very beginning of the film where you have that initial interchange between those two characters, or or was it literally just because of what the police did? Or do you know, it's like it it's just such a complicated, yep. interesting film. It is, yeah. And it makes it harder to talk about it in a quite in-depth way because I think it is incredibly personal. And I think Spike Lee kind of knows that. The famous quote is that after the film and people came up to him to ask about what is the right thing? Did Mookie do the right thing? He said the only people that ask him that are sort of white viewers and white critics. And he thinks there's like there's more of an understanding and awareness of why that happened from, I guess, especially, I think like this predated like the the LA riots because they were 92, I think. This is 89. This was like a, a seminal moment bef- before it wasn't reactionary to sort of a particular sort of national event. This was just ongoing constantly. And he was saying that, yeah, if, you, if you're asking that question, you just don't really get it. Yeah. And I, that makes sense. Today's episode is sponsored by Pairs Network and they have enough of our American listeners. If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pairs Network. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. 
Pay makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop design. And they have guaranteed US-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pairs Network, you'll receive one month free of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build a website for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com slash free promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. I'm still reeling from that Giancarlo Esposito reveal. I know, like when you said that, I was like, "Oh my god, it is oh, yeah. him!" And then, but like, he just you just can't see it. It's because he's so self extreme. He's not the reserved person that he's kind of developed his character into being. Like he plays the same character yeah. in everything now, doesn't he? <laughs> but yeah, when you were talking about Radio Raheem, it seems like a good point to move on to talking about the song in question today, which is "Fight the Power" by Public Enemy. So, for those unaware, Public Enemy is an American hip hop group formed by Chuck D and Flavor Flav. Have uh, you got your um, <laughs> sort of neck what <laughs> necklace watch on, Alex? I have, yeah, I've got it set to uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Nice, nice. <laughs> Do you want to give me a bit of Flavor Flav catchphrase, Alex? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but I must admit, I have seen at least one episode of, uh, what was it, Flavor Flav's House Flavor of, of Love? Love? Yeah, something <laughs> like that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there is a, there's a video of a kid online who's trying to do the world's longest year boy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good one to watch. Chuck D and Flavor Flav, and they were formed in Long Island, New York in 1985. So they're quite early in the hip-hop genre, sort of post-run DMC, post-Grandmaster Flash, but still like in the, at the seminal time of hip-hop changing and developing from like the beatbox era to more of the, maybe more of a political influence and actually saying something i think prior to this this comments on society and culture and uh sort of social difficulties and conversations was kind of limited to like one-off lines but like public enemy are just political through and through they have their finger on the pulse they have their views and they express it and they are generally considered pioneers of hip-hop not due to well mostly due to their experimentation with music but they they grabbed the attention of various radio stations because of their stance. So yeah, they also attributed to making hip-hop mainstream in a lot of ways. Something we'll probably be aware of, my first ever experience of Public Enemy was the mashup they did with Anthrax. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so people know where Anthrax is kind of is a metal band, very popular metal band. But they also did uh, a lot of music with Living Color, um, oh. Sonic Youth. So they were trying to sort of branch out and break barriers. And a lot of articles talk about this being almost seminal in the sort of the the new metal, like hip hop, rap rock sort of start. Like this, you know, we, there was obviously sort of the Aerosmith and the Run DMC, but like they were really going into it at a sort of a, a creative level, at a really early level. And were, I think, one of the first bands to sort of like market themselves internationally, or hip hop groups anyway. So they were really pushing it which goes against the view that i had as a kid was why is that guy got a big hat and a huge watch what is this gimmick band <laughs> poor chuck d i think flavor flavor can play like 12 instruments <laughs> which is like you know incredible coming from someone who can play a grand total of zero <laughs> play the triangle can you alex you could play you could play an instrument at some point yeah i can what was I it? the bar the baritone the baritone can, yes uh... do you think you could still pick up pick it up not that return, no. I can play a little bit of guitar. Did uh, Flavor Flav contact you for a uh, duet? He did, but I, I'm un- unavailable at the moment. <laughs> Imagine that phone call. Just like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Flavor. Sorry, yeah. Flavor. <laughs> Mr. Flavor. 
Yeah. Uh, do we have a like a, an awareness of Public Enemy's music generally? Much of it for me was was just growing up was just Bring the Noise, and I knew about this song. That was it. Yeah, just the two songs for me. Yeah, same. I mean, obviously, like Flavor Flavor is a cultural icon. <laughs> yes, he very much. So. The, the yeah, more. like we knew who he was. Transcends the band. Yeah, I think I probably saw him more as like a Bez character, like from Happy Mondays. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yes, guy with exactly. the maracas. Yeah, but clearly not. <laughs> yeah, I think because they, they, they had like turntablists and sort of DJs and other sort of members. I think come and go from public here, but generally it's Chuck D and Flavor Flav. And I think they were their first gigs learning more and more they supported the beastie boys i always forget beastie boys were before a lot of things like beastie boys i think ll cool j supported beastie boys this song was made at the request of spike lee which i did not know ah, i was wondering that. it was yeah. a sing yeah it was, it was released as a single in 89 by motown records but spike lee was kind of reaching out to people to make a song for this film that he was, he was coming up with now public enemy being from new york as well they had a bit of a, an affinity together and if you watch the video for Fight the Power, I don't know if you have watched it on YouTube, it's yes. like a march of sorts in Brooklyn. It's quite sort of unusual. I can't tell if it's like a real march because it feels it. It's got the same sort of tempo. and That's what I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think it is. Uh, unless they just said, let's do a march, you know, Fight the Power, it kind of makes sense why you, you would do it. Yeah. But it's uh, it's kind of interesting. I guess it's a weird state of like music videos because it just feels like it's a live performance. Yeah, that's why I could I couldn't I couldn't work out the same as you. I was like, it looked like it was the set from the film, so I didn't know whether they just used the set to film the video. Yeah, but it feels like a real march, doesn't it? Because it's it like does. the street is jam packed full of people. It like is, yeah. it's not like CGI like back rows. It's like there's literally hundreds of people in there. <laughs> it's it's mad. It is. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, the popularity was rising, and definitely, it's a it's a song with a, a finger on the pulse. But yes, in the film, and I'm very interested to know what you think about this D, because we get the full version of the song "Fight the Power" instantly as it plays over a quite unusual credit scene, and we know what you think about credit scenes, D. Of yep. Rosie Perez, who plays Mookie's girlfriend in the film, uh, she's doing a interpretive dance of sorts to the song. Apparently, it took eight hours to film. Uh, she lo- it looks like it because she looks. She I looks can't tell she's angry or she's <laughs> na- she's absolutely yeah. cream crackered. Um, yeah, what do you think about this, guys? Then, yeah, seeing as I'm the guy at Champions <laughs> opening credit sequences on this podcast, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this opening scene. Uh, I'm not sure if it quite meets my uh, criteria, though, oh, okay. uh, of it easing you into the movie. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is quite simplistic in concept, I suppose, but it's it's an unrelentless dance that packs a punch. And, and, and that's not even a pun on the fact that she's wearing a boxing costume at one point. Mm. Costume? Is that what you call them? Boxing costumes? One of those boxing, boxing costumes? Outfit, yeah. Attire? Ring attire, yeah. Ring attire, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's certainly not a visual that I'm going to forget, um, especially with like the song pumping over the top of it. I thought it was quite like a bold and brave move to just just to start a film with someone dancing for four minutes straight. <laughs> it's, it's the sort of thing that you'd only see from a film where a director knows exactly what he wants in this film. Like it, it's his vision from the start, it's, or her vision from the start. If that makes sense, yeah, I think yeah. that makes perfect sense. I think that's that's dead on. What I do think's weird though is, to me, this is a very replicatable scene, but I don't think I've ever seen this parodied in, in anything else. Yeah, I wonder. What, yeah, no. I don't know. I don't know if there's many parodies of this. Is there many parodies of this film? Yeah, the the uh, the. I think there's a lot that do the just spin through the window sort of thing. Yeah, so as soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh, that's that bit in Bob's Burgers." <laughs> yes, he does it in Bob's Burgers. That's the main reference that I'm thinking of. 
I mean, I think a lot of films took the kind of wonky camera angles from this, didn't they, and kind of used that. It feels yeah. like yeah. a lot of films that came probably came after this one sort of adopted that idea <laughs> from this. Because I feel like I don't think I saw any... I can't think of any films that predate this that, like, so overtly use that slant angle. But, no, but no, off the top of my head. When did that John Travolta film come out? Where he's in space? <laughs> uh, John Travolta film oh, in space? That up. No, no. Pulp Fiction 2? Oh, it was, the, it was the year 2000. It was Battlefield Earth. <laughs> <laughs> it was noted to having a, a lot of Dutch angles. Oh, because he's like floating in space. Is that why? Well, I've, I've just Googled it now and like you can see the trailer starts to play and every single shot is at an angle. See, I wouldn't put it past it having origins beyond because Spike Lee is like highly educated in, in cinema. Like he, he is a big fan of like old cinema, foreign cinema. I forget he went to the famous school in New in New York, um, but yeah, he knows his stuff, so he might have adopted it from somewhere else. He might. Have. He definitely uses it a lot <laughs> in a good way. I think it's interesting because that scene is clearly on a stage, isn't it? Yeah. Which is interesting because then, like, it's it's obviously jarring against the reality of what comes, but it, it sort of acts as that initial point of like everything's sort of fine, but at the same time you can see in her face like the anger and, <laughs> and the tiredness and and like the the longer it goes on, it, it is quite. It feels like you feel a bit of tension building. She's like, when is this going to actually end? Because it feels like it just goes on and on and on and on because it's the full song. It really perfectly kind of mirrors what the rest of the film brings to the table it's sort of like a film in miniature in, in a lot of ways talking about the same things but just not vocally just visually so yeah it's a really really um interesting way to start a film and like i said i don't know if i've ever seen anything like it in any other film before i think with the song itself it's it's kind of the perfect film for this podcast in a lot of ways because i don't think we've done a film where a song features so prominently yeah. because it's not just the opening it features like four or five times in the film itself doesn't it yeah Spike Lee wanted the song to be a leitmotif throughout the film, and it is featured through Radio Raheem's boombox often being played and spouted out through the Brooklyn streets. There's that great bit where he's just opposite um, sort of the Latino group, and they're just both turning up their boomboxes to see who's his louder. Yeah. And Radio Raheem just absolutely dominates it. I mean, that be- that boombox is huge. He's absolutely massive. And yes, Fight the Power always wins. Lee said in an interview in 2019, he wanted the song to be defiant. He wanted it to be angry. He wanted it to be rhythmic. Uh, and he thought right away, Public Enemy. What do you guys think of the actual song then? I think it's less nuanced than the film itself. Yeah. I think that goes without saying. And it kind of, it adds that impulse of anger, you know, like when it's needed. And I think it builds up into Radio Rahim because he seems at the beginning like he's quite like a quiet, just sort of like stoic sort of person. I know there's that scene in the middle with the whole love and hate and the uh, the rings, but it's sort of like he's obviously listening to that music throughout and maybe that's kind of what builds him up and it kind of gets him alongside with bugging out like towards the end. And I think it just it just adds to that sense of, of something coming, like building towards a violent ending, I suppose. Yep. Yep. Yeah, basically. Do what do you think? I think I have a problem in my brain that I find it hard to separate this song from Bring the Noise. Mm-hmm. Like, if I try in my head right now to sing it, it would just go straight into Bring the Noise. <laughs> but I, I like Bring the Noise, so if it sounds like Bring the Noise, then that's a good thing. Yeah, Bring the Noise is an absolute jam. Like I said, I don't think the song is as sort of rhythmically entertaining as that. When you read the lyrics, the lyrics are really interesting and poignant, but just listening to the song, yeah, it's not for me. For me, it's like a one or two liner. Like, it's the fight the power bit and the sort of the after bit, which is interesting, and then I, I couldn't recall much of it. 
There's definitely a part where he calls Elvis racist. Yes, well, yeah, I'm, it's quite an interesting bit, actually. But yeah, the song uses similar yeah. lyrics and name to the Isley Brothers song, uh, Fight the Power, which was released in 1975. Specifically the line, Fight the Powers That Be. So like a lot of hip-hop at the time, it relies heavily on sampling of other tracks and looping of sounds. Uh, I think there's actually only two instrumentalists in the song from Public Enemy's perspective, which was a saxophonist and the scratches from Terminator X, who was their turntablist. But everything else is just sampling, which was very popular at the time. And it has been incredibly influential in shaping how future hip-hop sounds. Lyrically, a bit like the film, it has a lot of calls to arms, like the style of Malcolm X saying it's not about equality because it's Chuck D puts it, uh, we don't know the game. Then it uses famous phrases from MLK when he calls the audience my beloved. I think it's the same as Spike Lee. It's that both of them have good points. Both of them are from sort of two different sides of the same coin. He lambasts people like Elvis Presley. Chuck D was very famously gone on record multiple times afterwards in interviews saying, I loved Elvis Presley. Black people loved Elvis Presley. That wasn't the problem. It was the fact that he was elevated to such a status for his use and influences from typically black music like um, bluegrass and blues, but the recognition was never there from of the origins. It was just because he's white, he gets to have the success of this music of his predecessors who go unknown forever. Yeah, and, and that ties in, doesn't it, with the film and, and the, the Hall of Fame on the wall. And there's also the conversation between Mookie and Sal's son about um, his favourite music artists and stuff, rock artists and stuff. Oh, know? yes, yeah. It's yeah. not like Bugging Out asks for the ones to be taken down. He wants black yeah, yeah. places to be added. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, and in the song Flavor Flavor Lambast John Wayne. No defence there, though, because John Wayne was a piece of shit. <laughs> An absolutely disgusting, disgusting human being uh, <laughs> that should never watch his films. Uh, yeah, so the group space player at the time, Brian Hardgroove, that has to be a moniker. <laughs> because if you're a bass player and your surname is Hardgroove, then you've just, you've got to... Go, Please, Mr. Hardgroove is my father. <laughs> got to go into music. But yeah, he said of the song's message, law enforcement is necessary. As a species, we haven't evolved past needing that. However, fight the power is not about fighting authority. It's not about that at all. It's about fighting abuse of power. Like I say, I think because Spike got them to make the song for the film, it's so intertwined. I agree with you, Alex. It's, very, it's a lot more on the nose, but I think the film needs it in a way. It's, it's that undercurrent. It's more examples. It's like the heat. Um, it's like the little sort of tensions rising. It's that it's always there. It's growing and it's growing and something's going to happen. And it's inevitable. The song especially is not joyous or anything. It's, it's con- it is confrontational. It's about sort of getting in the face. And yeah, I think it works because of that. And it's very successful because of that. And I actually can enjoy it at a different level because of that. Yeah. And I think it is, yeah, it's a good point to say that it, it doesn't necessarily, like the film, it's not promoting violence necessarily. And even no. in the video, it's it's a march. It's a peaceful march. They're just marching through the street and this is it. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it is it is echoing a lot of what the film echoes. I think that's why it works so well. But like I said, because it's so, yeah, we'll say on the nose, like, and it's punchier then it does kind of, you can see how in the film Ridia Rahim's character kind of gets a bit built up by it and a bit like, no, I'm going to I'm gonna take action. But it's, it's all down to his interpretation, I guess, or, or how it's impacted him. And I guess that's that's the film as well, isn't it? It's like, mm-hmm. how, yep. how, how do you personally interpret interpret these events and what happened? Yeah, I can't think of any other film that's as personal and have such a diverse reaction. Not off the top of my head anyway. Come back to me. <laughs> Rolling Stones, finally, and I, I emphasize finally because they updated their 500 greatest songs of all time. Now, 
the older versions of this, I think it was like 2004, and maybe there was one about 2011, I can't remember, uh, they were very centralised around the 60s. Like, music has just never been as good as, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and there was only three songs from the 21st century in that list. To Eminem and Hey Ya by Outkast. Now, Hey Ya by Outkast is in the top ten songs of all time. Is it? Don't know if I'd go there, <laughs> but, you know. It's a good it's, song, though. It is good, yeah. It's, well, it's the last thing. I think it's an absolute jam. The writing about it really makes sense. But, yeah, it's a lot more diverse. It's a lot more balanced. But number two on that list, after Aretha Franklin's respect, is this. It's this song. Whoa. This song is the number two. Number two greatest song of all time. I mean, that is a big shout. It's surprising to hear. I mean, obviously, it has a, it, you know, it has an important message and things. But it, it depends, like what what constitutes a great song, doesn't it? It's not yeah. like a, you know, it's not a, a sing along anthem necessarily. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, we've all said that. Well, I don't know if Alex did as well, but Public Enemy's other song is better than this. Yeah. yeah I well, it's the song I know more. Yeah, I think that's probably because I tie it to the Anthrax, which was a, a, a lot more related to a, a musical style I was uh, fa- a fan of. And it was on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. <laughs> was it on Tony Hawk's? I thought it was on a wrestling game. No, oh, probably. It was on a it was on a video game. Uh, but yes, do you want to know the top ten at the moment? Yeah, go for it. Aretha Franklin's respect. Is this the top five? This is not the top five now. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess me saying guess the top five songs of all time, it would go on forever. Yes, yeah, so uh, Aretha Franklin's respect. Number two, Public Enemy, Fight the Power. Number three, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. Uh, number four is Bob Dylan, Like a Rolling Stone. Five, Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Six, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Seven, The Beatles' Strawberry Fields Forever. Eight, Missy Elliott, Get Your Freak On, as I said last week. Nine, Fleetwood Mac's Dreams. And then ten, Outcast. Hey, ya. It's an interesting list. It is an interesting list. Solid yes. playlist. Compared to previous years, it is much more varied, uh, shall we say. So, yes, I think it's gone up. So, 6% of the songs now are from the 2010s, whereas the last list there was uh, 0.6%. Top five. As we were saying before, most likely wrongly, this film was very controversial at the time. And usually controversial films, it does nothing bad for the film. Controversial films usually take off. More people want to see them. And I hope that more people saw Do the Right Thing because of the backlash it had at the time. But I am very curious to think, and I've congregated this through various official lists because I have no life. Uh, what are the most controversial <laughs> films of all time, guys? God. Yes, I know. Do the right thing. No, it was not on. It, it, well, it was on some lists, but it was not on many. Um, Life of Brian. No, Life of Brian, as we have discussed before, yes, it was controversial at the time, but no, it is not on the list. The Exorcist. Nope. Christ. It's going well, guys. Uh, Freaks. Freaks was Freaks was number ten. I did a list of ten, and it was number ten. Freaks is a very unusual film. That's a good shout there. One, one of these is an, is an absolutely huge... Passion film. of the Christ. I was going to say Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ is was in the top ten, but not top five. Apocalypto. No, nope, no Apocalypto. You, you've got number six and you've got number ten. Are any of these... Like, any of them films? <laughs> well, what I was going to say, are any of these films like actually famous films, like, or are they just like so yes. obscure? Okay. D, the film you said, think of a very similar film about the same topic by Martin Scorsese. You said Passion of the Christ. Passion. <laughs> the Last Temptation of Christ. The Godfather. The Last Temptation of Christ. Have you not seen it with uh, Willem Dafoe? Nope. As, as Jesus. Willem yeah, Dafoe as Jesus. Jesus. Yes, yeah. Wow, Get that on sounds, it, guys. That sounds intense. <laughs> uh, definitely watch it. It is number one. Number two, German propaganda film from the 30s. 
Oh, uh, that ha- is it. No, I was going to say Hightower. I don't know if that's right. Is it? I know. Oh, 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 land, oh, oh I know another one. The, <laughs> oh, but oh, it's oh, the, oh, the one about Lisa, the K- KKK by W.J. Griffiths. D.W. Um, yes, that's in the top five. I want to say Land and Freedom. Is that what it's called? No, no. Born? No, no. Last Words Born. Nation. Birth of a Nation. Birth go. of a Nation. Yes. Well done. Well done. God, you got, got one with much hand-holding and much guiding. (laughs) Number five on the list, very, very popular, often in top lists of greatest films of all time, uh, was a banned book in the 70s. I don't know when the book came out, but the film came out in the 70s. Well, I was going to say Ladies Child is Lover. (laughs) Oh, Clockwork Orange. Yes, Clockwork Clockwork Orange. Orange. Well done, well done. Okay, so the the, uh, Nazi propaganda film was Triumph of the Will. Oh, yeah. Uh, Now there's one more, one more. Ooh. Do you want to? Could you give us like a time frame? Could I give you a time frame? Hmm. Or is it? Or, sh- or should we be getting it? <laughs> no, I don't know if you. I don't. Who know. did it offend? <laughs> That's a good question. Who did it offend? Everyone. How would I describe it? It's directed by a guy called Bernardo Bertolucci from 1972, and it stars uh, Marlon Brando, and he did something very, very bad in it. Is is it Last Tango in Paris? Is that it's Last Tango in Paris. Yeah. Last Tango in Paris. Yes, 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 yes. Mostly more recently because basically of a certain scene in it which was not consensual. Did it involve butter? Am I making that? It did involve butter as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. This, yeah, this is person. all real life. Yes, Marlon Brando was, you know, <laughs> a questionable individual to say the least. Uh, well done, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Even for me, it took a lot of hand holding. Let's be honest. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, any excuse to hold your hand, Alex. Okay, this point is movie or song, but I think we've made it pretty clear between the three of us which one we're going to pick. Yeah. So, uh, Alex? Yeah, film. I think, I think I honestly think it's one of the best films I've ever seen. <laughs> I think it goes like it's simple. Wow, that's great. But I, think it, I think it genuinely is. Like a, I would put it in like a top 10, maybe, or at least a top 20. Well, I'm the same. Similarly, I probably... I think I would need to watch it again because I only watched it this week, but I think it is a content to go straight into my like top 15 hypothetical best films. Not that I have a top 15 written down. Oh, Dave, them. come on. I've got a top 350. <laughs> is Do the Right Thing in that list, Ben? Uh, yeah. Uh, one second. Quick Google. Quick look on my Excel spreadsheet. 107. Top third. <laughs> yeah, top third. Top third, yeah. <laughs> I'm just really happy that you uh, enjoyed it so much, Dave. Okay. <laughs> That's my view. <laughs> Movie or song? No, I'm just happy D enjoyed it. So that brings an end to another episode of that song from that movie. Let us know which one you think is better, the movie or the song, on Twitter. Alex, what is our Twitter handle? TSF, TMPod. Thank you. So you can help the podcast in many ways. One of those ways is by sharing it on a random subreddit. But Ben, what random subreddit should the viewers pick this week? The old boy subreddit. <laughs> They like Spike Lee on there. Because I will never forgive you, Spike Lee. I will never forgive you. Uh, you can also help the podcast by signing up for our Patreon, buying our merch, or leaving a review. You can leave reviews on Spotify as well now, uh, which doesn't require any faffing around with iTunes. I did it. That's how easy it is. Ben did it. All the links are in our show notes below. Below? Nope, it's not a YouTube video. All the <laughs> show notes are on social media. Like and subscribe. Yeah. Don't forget to hit that notification bell. Smash that like button. Right, so all that's left now is do some goodbye. So it's goodbye from myself, goodbye, and goodbye from Alex. Oh, there's Ross Perot. Dr. Laura. <laughs> Spike Lee! Wait a minute. They're not so great. Okay, but there's Dan Quayle and Corny Love. Tanya Harding. Al Sharpton. Ah, Tom Arnold! <laughs> what a reference. And goodbye from Ben. 
Fuck Frank Sinatra. <laughs> so, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Quang, quang, quang. We're the trolleys. I don't, I don't have any history, Ben. This is your segment. Yeah, I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have any history. <laughs> I was thinking the same. I, I was giving myself pa- the pausing time for me to scroll. Okay.